The reading can be found on page 289. One Samuel seventeen verses one to eleven and thirty two to fifty four. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched their tent at Ephes Damimim towards Soka and the Ezeka. Saul the Israelite assembled and camped on the valley of Eli and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shettles. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and I not you are the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing this, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Going to uh, verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he, he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream,
put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I not a dog that you come with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saved, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of it into our, our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead and into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took off the Philistine's sword and drew it from its shield. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout to pursue the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were shrewn along the Charim road to Gath and to Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered the camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. So, thank you uh, so much for reading uh, that for us, uh, especially uh, a long story and even uh, trying, to, try, trying to edit it. It's still a long story, so thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Let's pray as we, uh, as we look at this story together. Father God, this is such a familiar story to so many of us. And yet, Lord, I pray that it would be more than wallpaper for the ears that we, we, we've scarcely noticed. Lord, I pray that you would open it afresh to our hearts and our minds today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would use it to stir faith in us, to teach us what it means to trust you, even in the face of the greatest obstacles that might come in our way. So come, move among us by your spirit. Take hold of, uh, of the words that I speak, Lord, and may they be your words that you speak to your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of David and Goliath is, of course, without a doubt, one of the best known in the Bible. 
It's become a kind of motif, synonymous with almost any narrative in which the plucky underdog overcomes their overwhelmingly superior opponent against all the odds. You know, it's the classic thing of a, uh, an FA Cup tie where you've got the non-league team against the Premier League team and somehow they manage to beat them. The biblical story is, is seeped into our cultural consciousness, our cultural imagination, uh, and yet I wonder whether we actually really understand the story. Because the, the real difference between David and Goliath isn't just that one's big and one's little. It's that one trusts in human strength and the other trusts in God alone. In other words, this is a story about faith. And the curtain opens with the Philistine army camped on the border of Israel. Opposite them, across the valley of Elah, is the Israelite army led by King Saul. But the Philistines have a secret weapon, a champion, a giant from Gath named Goliath. And every morning and every evening for 40 days, which is a biblical way of saying a very long time, Goliath would come out and taunt the Israelite army. You know, a bit like the way that football fans might do in a stadium. You're not singing anymore, that kind of thing. It's a bit close to home, possibly, for some wearing Chelsea shirts here this afternoon. And this giant Goliath would come out who would taunt the Israelite army, challenging them to send over their own champion, a representative, to take them on in a duel to the death, winner takes all. And Goliath, we're told, uh, is rather tall um, so the, 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 in, in the, the version that we heard, it says it was six cubits in a span. I'm sure you're all familiar with the cubit measurement, yeah? It's about three meters. So I'm, I'm less than two meters. So stick another half of me on top, okay? And what's more, he's covered from head to toe in armor weighing 5,000 shekels. Again, you all know what a shekel is, don't you? Yeah, good. Well, I don't need to explain that. Um, 125 pounds, about 57 kilograms. And just the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds, 7 kilograms. All in all, the picture that we're presented with is of a pretty formidable opponent. Enter David. David is the young, youngest of his father Jesse's eight sons. While his three eldest brothers are, were out at the front with King Saul's army, David was back at home tending the family sheep and tasked with the rather menial job of sending food and supplies to the front line. Now, while we, we don't know how sure, uh, for sure how old David was at the time, we can hazard a guess that he wasn't yet 21 because that was the age for military service. So he's got to be younger than 21. Uh, and then in verse 33, Saul rejects David's first offer to fight on the grounds that he was just a na'ar in Hebrew, which means a youth. He's probably a teenager, 12, 13, 14 and Goliath, on the other hand, well, he's been a warrior from his youth. Outwardly, then, David 
well, he's not exactly an inspiring choice of hero, is he? He's certainly not the kind of champion you'd expect, especially when you consider that, do you remember, anyone remember what was said of King Saul when he was uh, first anointed? He towers above everyone else. This man that towers above everyone else doesn't want to go out. He'll send in the 12-year-old. Brilliant. David is certainly not an inspiring choice of champion. Uh, he's certainly no match for the heavily armed, well-built, tree-like Goliath whom the Philistines had put forward. And yet David introduces into the equation a new factor that nobody else has yet mentioned. Any idea what it is? God. No one has mentioned God up until now. He's the first person. First in verse 26, which we didn't have time to read. But then again, uh, when speaking to the king in verses 33 to 37, David recognizes that there's more to this battle than what the eyes can see. Saul and the rest of the Israelites had been acting as if God were completely irrelevant to the, ba to the battle. In fact, up to tw verse 26, when David speaks, nobody's mentioned God at all. Astonishingly, for what David calls the armies of the living God, they seem to have left their best weapon at home. But... As the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann observes, David will not have it so. For David, it is unthinkable to assess a battle or anything else apart from the rule of the living God. In other words, David's faith gives him a totally different perspective on reality. Saul and the Israelites, uh, Israelite army see only Goliath. David sees a power outside of human strength, a power outside of what our eyes alone can see, a power that relativizes Goliath's proud boasting. The Israelite army, led by King Saul, look at, David, look at Goliath and they're intimidated. David looks at Goliath and thinks, yeah, he's pretty tall, but you know what? God's a lot bigger. God is the creator of heaven and earth. God can create a hurricane with the flick of his little finger. Who on earth is Goliath against him? You know, we, we, we sing the, uh, that, that song and it's kind of thought of as a, as a children's song. Oh, God is a great big God. Looks like they could have done, could have, could have done with taking that to heart. Oh, God is a great big God. You know, do we actually believe that? We're faced with Goliath and we're scared. We really think that Goliath's bigger than God? It often seems like that. Now, I, you know, I, don't, want, I, don't, I don't want you to think that I'm trivializing the challenge that Goliath represented. I don't think David was either. But what David was doing was putting things into their proper perspective. Goliath, yes, he was still Goliath. He was still a giant. He was still clothed in heavy bronze armor. He was still armed to the teeth. But there was a power greater than Goliath, the living God. Take God out of the equation, and yes, the, the battle does look pretty hopeless. But God's always in the equation. 
if God really does rule over all things, then he's very much a part of every equation. Uh, and perhaps the mathematical analogy is an apt one. So uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones uh, has written what's probably uh, the the best children's Bible and children's devotional book I've come across. And the reason for that is because it's great for adults too, not just the kids. Um, and she, she, has, uh, she offers two basic equations to teach us about God maths. Would you like to learn some God maths? Two basic equations. Let's see how you get on with them. God plus nothing equals everything. Okay? Everything minus God equals nothing. Okay? David might have only been a nipper, but he knew God maths. In fact, uh, the, 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 whole, uh, the, the, the whole devotional is so good, let me read it to you in full. She asked, do you know God maths? It's nothing like ours. For instance, according to God maths, five loaves plus two fish equals enough food to feed 5,000 people plus leftovers. One lost sheep equals as valuable as 99. Gideon was the leader of God's army, but God told him, your army of 32,000 is way too large to defeat the Midianites. Too large? Wait, what? Twice, God had Gideon actually reduce his army until it was small enough to win the battle. Small enough? God would give Gideon's army the victory, but he wanted them to rely on him and not their own strength. Gideon's army of 300 was, an, was outnumbered 450 to 1. But remember God math? God plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus God equals nothing. And notice what a big difference this makes to the way that David speaks to King Saul. Though he speaks of how as a shepherd he killed a lion and a bear to protect his flock, he isn't trying to enhance his own credentials. Rather, he says, it was the Lord who delivered him from them. The grammar is important because God is the subject of the verbs. God isn't passive, God is active. God is the living God. He's alive and he's at work in the world today, right here, right now. God's not sat on the sidelines watching TV with a, a, a blind eye to what's going on here. David's faith is a faith that sees God on the throne. And when David offers to fight Goliath, it's not on the basis of his superior fighting ability or his tactical know-how. It's on the basis that God would save him from the hand of the Philistine. Now, David doesn't doubt the stories of God's deliverance he's heard in the scriptures since he was a boy. The stories like the Exodus or that story of Gideon. David has seen God's deliverance worked out in his own life as well. In the wilderness of all places. Now there's a good, good, good lesson to ponder. He knows that God delivers. And that makes fighting Goliath a whole lot less frightening. Well, Saul is convinced. 
convinced he doesn't want to go out, that is. And he says, well, okay, if you're going to go out, go, may the Lord be with you, but I still want you to look like a champion. So I want you to wear my clothes, my armor, have my sword. Saul tries to dress David's faith in the conventional attire of human strength. But David refuses. The armor doesn't fit. Saul simply doesn't realize how radical faith in the living God is. David will not have his faith dressed in worldly clothing. David's greatest strength is his weakness. His greatest strength is his weakness. Not any amount of fancy armor. And this comes to the fore once again when David and Goliath face off. A little bit later in the story, the Philistine sneers with contempt, apparently insulted by the apparent weakness of the challenger who sent to face him. Goliath has sword and spear and javelin, but David has none of these. One commentator writes, The Lord means to overcome the heavily armed giant, not by an armed man, but by an unarmed man. You've heard of taking a gun to a knife fight. David took a knife to a gun fight. David says he will strike Goliath down and cut off his head, but only because it will be the Lord who will deliver him into his hands. And the point of this story is summed up for us in verse 47. The Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see, the story isn't really about two champions, David and Goliath, at all. It's about two different kinds of warfare, one which relies on a sword and spear and javelin, the, the visible, the impressive, conventional weapons of armies, and one which relies on the name of the Lord, a visibly unimpressive kind of weapon, available only through faith, which completely overturns our perceptions of strength and weakness, advantage and disadvantage, victory and defeats. See, God's idea of power is completely different to ours. The Lord does not save by sword and spear. Intimidation, fear, and violence, they're not part of God's arsenal. God uses what is weak to shame the strong. It's God maths again. Do you remember it? God plus nothing equals Everything, everything minus God equals nothing. Or as my old youth leader uh, used to put it quite memorably, a loser plus the Lord makes a winner. It's cheesy, but it stayed with me for 20 years. God hasn't got any need for sword or spear. And we all know what happens next. David takes a stone, puts it in his sling, hurls it at Goliath. The giant falls down dead. The battle's won. Hooray! Only what we seldom grasp is that actually David's choice of weapon wasn't a complete left field option because many armies at the time did have companies of slingers. What's more... Read the description of Goliath, all that armor. Where's the only un, uh, 
only vulnerable spot? Where's the only exposed part of his body? Doesn't look so stupid now, does it? What looked like strength was actually weakness. And what looked like weakness was actually strength. And we might call that God's logic. Do you want to be strong? Then delight in your weakness, Jesus says. Jesus says, do you want to save your life? And throw it away for my sake. Jesus says, do you want to be rich? And go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus says, do you want to be free? Then become a slave to the will of God. Jesus says, do you, do you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here's a towel. Learn how to serve. This is the way of the cross. And as the theologian Richard Raw puts it, the way of the cross looks like failure. In fact, you could say that Christianity is about how to win by losing, how to let go creatively, how the only real ascent is descent. And again, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, in, in that devotional I mentioned, uh, kind of has a great way of putting this. I promise I'm not on commission. However, her book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, is available from all good bookshops. She says this, what does a rocket need to lift off and go zooming into outer space? It needs a launch pad. And do you know what God's launch pad is in our lives? From which he can do anything. Is it great faith? Our perfect record? Incredible courage? No. It's our weakness. God's power comes to us in our littleness, in our brokenness, in our not knowing, and in our not being able. And when God's power meets our weakness, lift off. Jesus, like his ancestor David, was an unlikely champion. He had no formal theological credentials. He didn't come out of vicar factory. He was of doubtful parentage to those all around him. He was a poor, homeless rabbi. He spent far too much time with all the wrong people. Worse still, he had this strange idea that the Messiah needed to be handed over to suffer and die. And like David, people tried to dress him up as a more acceptable champion. They tried to make him king by force, but he wouldn't have any of it. In fact, one time, one of his best friends said this to him, said it was madness, said, you need, to, you need to dress up in the armor. You need a sword. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You haven't got a clue. That's not how the Lord fights. Like I said, God logic. Things aren't always as they seem. Uh, and St. Chrysostom uh, who's a, a preacher of the early church. His, uh, the, the, his nickname, Chrysostom, literally means golden tongues. People thought he was a pretty decent preacher. And he describes this beautifully in one of his Easter sermons. He says, hell took a body and discovered God. 
It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. Jesus Christ, humanity's God-given representative, takes on death and wins. And as John Henry Newman puts it in his wonderful hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height, he says this, O loving wisdom of our God, with all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. In Jesus, as in his spiritual ancestor David, it was weakness that won the battle. All you need is nothing. And most of us are too frightened to have nothing. All we need is nothing. Because everything plus God. Wait a minute, that's wrong. <laughs> because God plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus God equals nothing. Now you and I both know that God doesn't save by sword and spear, don't we? How does he save us? By a cross. By being killed rather than killing. And yet when we're confronted by the giants that we face, how do we want God to respond? With sword and spear and javelin. Maybe God's way of saving us isn't always removing the giant, but enabling us to face the giant armed with nothing but our own weakness so that we and the rest of the watching world might see that it's God's power that saves. Faith gives us new eyes. Eyes that allow us to stare a giant in the face and know that the outcome of the battle isn't determined by outward appearances. Eyes that allow us to confront our foes, however big and scary they might be. Whether that giant's name is cancer, whether that giant's name is depression, whether that giant's name is the cost of living crisis, whether that giant's name is redundancy, whether that giant's name is divorce, whatever your giant's name, and know that God's power, in God's power, it doesn't have to control you. Eyes that allow us to receive gifts as simple as bread and wine as the way in which Christ fully and freely gives himself to us. And you know what's one of the fascinating little details of this story? That when, the, uh, when Goliath came out to taunt the Israelite army, we're told in verse 24 that they turned on their heels and fled. Look with me at verse 48, if you've got your Bible open. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Everyone else runs away. David runs and faces the battle face on. He runs into battle 
The challenge was huge, literally. But David's faith allowed him to see things in their proper perspective. The perspective in which weakness and only weakness wins. The perspective in which the giant Goliath is dwarfed by a great big God. And so whatever giants we face, whatever the giant is in your life, whatever the giant is in the life of the church or in the world, let's remember this. The battle is the Lord's. And he doesn't save by sword or by spear. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you know all too well the giants that we're facing right now. You know the names of the... You know the way that uh, they have an ability of taunting us like Goliath taunted the armies of Israel. Might be giants of grief, giants of sickness, giants of financial pressure, giants of relationship breakdown, giants of who knows what. But you know how like the Israelite soldiers we tremble in fear before such giants. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith of little children to know that our God is a great big God. And not just to know it, to sing the words, but to know it enough that we can run into the battle line to face them. And we ask this in the name of our great giant slayer, Jesus, who triumphed over sin and death by dying on the cross and rising to new life. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to um, respond uh, in, in song now, uh, and we're going to sing uh, a great song which speaks to, uh, to, to that truth that it is God who fights for us. We're going to sing the song, Bat- The Battle Belongs. Uh, so can I invite you to stand as we sing? Thank you.